Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, and uh, I'm not quite used to the weather now because we get one day like this every three years. So, um, and, but it's it's a real joy to be with you. It really is, and uh, bring you greetings from from the church there at uh, in Keswick, and so thankful that uh, is that me. Do you want me to put it in my pocket or something? Hmm. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> I'll, try and sta- I'll try and stand still anyway, how's that? <laughs> Probably won't work very well. But uh, if you've got your Bibles, and t- we can go- just go ahead and open them. And uh, we'll be looking at John 18. Uh, one of the privileges of um, uh, being a guest speaker is that you can choose your passage. But uh, um, John 18, and uh, the background is that the Lord's disciples, the disciples are, with, are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord Jesus is overwhelmed with a sorrow unto death. And he's in great agony of soul. He's seeking the face of God, preparing for the suffering that was shortly to come. And if you know the story, which I'm sure you do, we see with astonishment that the disciples are sleeping, not just once, but three times. And surely we must feel that rebuke when we see our own hearts mirrored in rebellion and sin. And then, after, then we gaze in wonder at the perfect submission of our Lord Jesus to the will of the Lord, knowing that the cup that the Father had given him to drink was a cup of unutterable suffering. And we're in the shadows of the evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, with his prayers now ended, is shaking those sleeping disciples awake one more time. He came to his disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And you can picture it, can't you? Those dozy disciples stretching and yawning, rubbing the sleep from their eyes. And then they see, they see, you know, like a line of torches snaking through the distance towards them. You know, they're woken from sleep and then coming towards them is is, is a line of torches. And Judas steps into view at the head of a troop of soldiers. And they've come to seize Jesus, to execute their wicked design. And it's interesting and humbling to see as soon as Jesus concluded that prayer, Father, not my will, but thine be done, we see that prayer immediately beginning to be answered as the will of the Lord to crush him is accomplished. But let's pray before we come to the Bible and and then read it together. So you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, open our eyes and open our ears. We bow before you because we really need your help. I need your help to speak clearly and humbly and with unction from, a, from, from on high. But we all need your help if we're to be good listeners and the words are to fall upon good soil. Work within us to call those of us who do not follow the Lord Jesus to repentance before it is too late. And in the hearts of those by grace who do follow him, that we would cling to him with tenacious faith, knowing that he is the good shepherd who protects and keeps us. In Jesus' name, Amen. John 18, verse 1, this is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook 
Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, that Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. This John 18, 1 to 11, and it's the scene that follows immediately on the conclusion of the Lord Jesus' prayers in Gethsemane. And as we approach these events, there's a temptation to view it as a moment of weakness and almost defeat for Jesus. We may even see it as a cause for mourning as we watch Jesus, our Saviour, being betrayed and bound and led away to the awful ordeal that awaits him. And to be sure, to be clear, the malice, the hatred of a rebellious world now begins to execute its worst intentions upon the Lord Jesus in a way that should absolutely appall us. And we see here the evidence of the depravity of the human heart is on display like never before. The bondage of the one who came to set us free. The evil betrayal of the only redeemer of God's people. The cruel violence inflicted on the God-man, the maker of heaven and earth. That's, that's, truly, that's truly monstrous. Should I take this off? And do it? Okay. So let's use this. Can you mute me? Thank you. I might actually just lose it from my ear then. <laughs> and it should cause us to reflect that far from if we were there, if we were there, we wouldn't have been defending the Son of God. We would have been inflicting pain and wound on our Saviour. But not everything is as it appears here. And I want you to see two aspects of Jesus' identity, who he is, and his mission that I believe that these verses highlight. And first of all, we see the true king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, judging the world. And then secondly, we see the good shepherd protecting his people. And let's look at the first one, the true king, judging the world. And I want you to go with me and just imagine briefly the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's about two days before Passover, and the city is jammed, it's packed full. 
with people all gathered together for the festival. And those narrow streets are crowded, bustling with people, all of them busy with last-minute preparations for the great feast. But while everyone is focused on the festivities, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in a secret, a clandestine meeting in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, with betrayal and darker business on the agenda. Matthew 26 tells us that it's here at this meeting, two days before Passover, they hatched their plot. Matthew tells us that they were plotting to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Political machinations going on. We don't know all the details, the exact sequence, whether it was at this meeting when they were gathered or some time shortly afterwards, Judas contacted them. Luke 22 verse 3 tells us that Satan entered into Judas. And then Judas conferred with the Jewish leaders who were jubilant to find an agent to assist them in their wicked design. And he was close to Jesus. He was in his circle. So the plan has been hatched. Blood money has been exchanged between Judas and the leaders of the Jews. And he went back to be with the other disciples to prepare the feast in the upper room. Can you imagine that the, the deceit and the evil of the fallen human heart on full display? And as Judas stabs his master in the, hit the back, he then returns to, to prepare and eat with him. Judas sat there when Jesus washed John's feet. And then Jesus washed James's feet and Andrew's and Thomas's and all the way down the line until Jesus washed his feet. He ate and drank with them all at the Passover meal until the moment come, came. And after having taken that morsel of unleavened bread from Jesus' hands, Judas delayed no longer. He went out into the night to rendezvous with the plotters. So while our Lord Jesus, our precious Lord Jesus, was agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas was co coordinating the assault on his brothers and his master. So armed with torches and lanterns and weapons, that snaking line of light in the darkness, Judas led a troop of soldiers and their officers to the place where he knew they would be, where he'd spent many nights before with Jesus and his disciples. There's some debate, some, you know, are these soldiers Roman soldiers or Jewish soldiers? The words that John uses usually refers to Romans. Some commentators suggest that the armed group consists of both the temple guards and the Roman officers who were seconded to the chief priest. And if that is the case, and I think this is really important, what we see is that the Roman civil and the Jewish religious powers of the day, normally at loggerheads and opposition with each other, what, what unites them? Common hostility to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in the world today. Now what unites the world oftentimes is hostility against our Lord Jesus. And we see, see the devil's hatred 
for the Son of God at its most stark. Two groups, right at opposite ends of the political and religious spectrum, they come together for one purpose, to get rid of the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, the only sinless one, the second Adam who succeeded where Adam fell, the greater David, and they came out not only in opposition to the Lord Jesus, but they came primed for a fight. They were armed to the teeth. And if Peter's violent act in verse 10 is any indication, if it had only been the disciples that they'd come to arrest, perhaps they'd have been justified in, in, in their expectation of conflict. But they've come bristling with weaponry, as if they expected to fight their way through the eleven and finally to lay hands on the unwilling Jesus to drag him away, kicking and screaming into the night. But that doesn't happen. What does happen? Jesus steps forward. Jesus steps forward. Before anyone could speak or do anything, Jesus took the initiative. It is a remarkable moment. He steps forward to receive, presumably, though John doesn't record it here, Judas's faithless kiss. And then he turns to the mob and asks them quietly, who are you looking for? Whom do, whom do you seek? And now Jesus, having seized the initiative, everyone must now respond to him. You see that? Jesus took the initiative and everyone now must react to him. Whether it's the disciples or Judas the traitor or the temple guards or Roman officers, everyone must now follow his lead. And look at, and look at his reply. When they tell him they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. And then they drew back and they fall to the ground. And three times over, he says it twice, but three times John records these words as though to make a point, a very deliberate point. I am he. And it's a contrast to the three occasions when we see the disciples in their weakness, sound asleep, fickle, unable to watch for even one hour. Now here, unlike them, here is Jesus, clothed with authority. Three times, John reports Jesus' words, his willing self-identification to the soldiers. Jesus isn't hiding behind the disciples. He's not cowering in the shadows behind an olive tree. No, he steps forward. He gives himself up. And he does it, notice very carefully, not as a helpless victim not stripped of power, overcome by the hatred of a world that rejected him. Here we see his dignity, his authority, his prerogatives as the divine son who answers, as you may well know in Greek, ego am I. I am. I am he. And it's the phrase that John has used repeatedly in his gospel, that Jesus used to point to who he was and what he came to do. It's the Greek use of the Hebrew 
what God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, I am. Jesus is the great I am. I am. Now what happens here, there is a little debate, but I'm convinced of this. God reveals himself to people like this in the Bible. Judges 13 verse 20, Manoah and his wife fell on their faces to the ground. Daniel 8, 18, when he'd spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He touched me and made me stand up. Acts 22, verse 7, when the persecuting Saul of Tarsus met the risen Christ, I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In Revelation 1, 17, when John sees the exalted Christ, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his hand on me, my, his right hand. Fear not, I am the first and the last. And here, on a very ordinary evening, in a very quiet olive grove in Jerusalem, this unremarkable looking man, Jesus of Nazareth, he locks eyes with his captors and identifies himself and the revelation puts them in the dust. I am. I am. And earlier when Jesus had been praying in Gethsemane, we had a glimpse of the solitude and the sorrow and the submission to the will of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. His submission to the sufferings that were ordained for him. We heard him pray, not my will but thine be done. Now that prayer of submission to the will of the Lord is complete. We see it beginning to be answered by the arrival of the troops with Judas at the head. But we ought not to imagine that Jesus is subject to the indignities of betrayal and bondage and beatings and everything else that is to come, the cross, as a merely passive victim, enduring what is beyond his power to stop. No. He is a real man. He is a man with the limitations and the liabilities of frail human nature. But for all his frail humanity, he demonstrates to us here that he is the unconquerable deity, the I Am. Who levels a squad of soldiers, armed to the teeth, ready for violence, simply by naming himself in their presence. This is no victim. This is the Lord of glory. This is the God-man. He stepped forward and he, with a flash of his divine glory, lest anyone should ever think that he was a pitiful, put-upon casualty of men's evil plans. He is the obedient son. He's actively going at his father's will to embrace the sufferings ordained. And as we see that, I want to make sure we don't miss the way that John illustrates the fundamental consequences that must inevitably follow on the disclosure of who Christ is and what he came to do upon his obedience and sufferings. If Jesus is who he is as he goes to the cross, what difference does that make? What are the implications? Well, look at the story. John highlights deliberately the separation between the disciples and the mob. 
Jesus had shaken the eleven awake. He roused them from their slumber. And then he stepped forward, positioning himself between the disciples behind and Judas in front, who's standing with the soldiers. Jesus positions himself between them. If you were to take out your iPhone and take a snapshot of that moment and capture that scene, you would have captured in miniature the divide that Jesus is coming and his cross and resurrection and his reign forces on every single one of us. Because there are those who follow him, him and there are those who deny him. There are false believers in their midst, Judas. There are secular powers, Roman officers. There are representatives of the religious elite, the temple guards. There are Jews and Gentiles. There are false friends and open enemies. And when Jesus makes himself known in their midst, the representatives of the rebel world fall to the ground judged. That's what Jesus' coming does. Do you see? In Luke 12, it says, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And it's a sobering picture because Jesus is the great divide. He really is. And he, he, he always will be. His works, who he is, forces people everywhere into one of two camps. And those who are not his disciples, please see this, those who are not his disciples will one day fall before the thunder of the voice of the Son of God who will say to those who have not repented when he comes to judge, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they'll be cast into the outer darkness, where there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So the tableau at Gethsemane, under that flickering torchlight of the soldiers, is a foreshadowing of the day to come. And it will blaze with light when Jesus, the great judge, will return. And the sheep will be separated from the goats and the redeemed from the damned forever. And it seems to me to be fitting that we should glimpse very deliberately this division as Jesus begins his march to Calvary. Because it is the cross that is the stumbling block to so many people. It is the cross that causes all people everywhere to decide into which of these two camps they will go. It's what you do my friend, today, it's what you do with the suffering Christ, that man nailed to a Roman cross that will decide everything for you. And I will just want, I, I think this is quite important because there are many who feel sorry for Jesus, I think. You remember in Luke 23, when Jesus said to the women weeping, do not weep for me? He called them daughters of Jerusalem, He's not trying to rebuke them. He's warning them. Your tears will count for nothing. So Jesus is not interested in you feeling sorry for him. Hundreds of people died in a Roman cross. And hear me very, very carefully. 
Many suffered more physical anguish than Jesus because the cruelest event of his suffering was what he felt in his soul. The suffering, the wrath of God. There are millions of tragedies that happen every day in our planet. And because of digital, we hear about them more than ever before. I don't know whether you've ever considered that. Because of digital, we hear more tragedies than ever before. But there has been tragedies for many years. And we think, probably rightly so, that the world is as mad and bad and crazy and as chaotic and as confused as it ever has been. And all over we see people saying, what God has said is right is wrong, and what we have said is wrong is right. Complete reversal. But at least some of it is that we see things today in 2022 in a way we have not seen before. And a day doesn't go by that there isn't something that moves your heart to pity. The victims of the war to Ukraine, in the Ukraine. Oppression, injustice, slaughter, persecution, cancer, terrorism. There's no shortage of suffering in the world. But just feeling sorry for sufferers will not save you. And even feeling sorry for Jesus will not save you. It isn't hard to feel sorry for people. And I'm not saying it's bad either. You'll be a real obnoxious person to be around if you never feel sorry for anyone. And you can be moved to compassion, moved to action, moved to relieve the suffering of others. But it's a natural emotion to feel sorry for people. We're naturally, humanly moved to feel pity for people. You have to be a really hard person not to feel pity when somebody is suffering unjustly. And to be honest, that is the experience of many this time of year, just not a few weeks out of Easter. People come to church in, in our country sometimes only twice a year, many people, Easter and Christmas. And it's not hard for the emotion to be, oh Jesus, I am so sorry, I am so sorry. And then Easter Sunday comes, he lives, great, he was a good person, bad things happened, but he lives, I love it. But the point is not to feel sorry for Jesus because Jesus does not need your sympathy. If he did, he would have thanked the women. The point is not to feel sorry for Jesus. The point is to be sorry for your sin this morning. Because Jesus is going to the cross for the joy that is before him. But if you don't know the Savior, you have good cause to cry. If you don't know Jesus, my friend... You have good cause to cry. And pity comes naturally, but repentance comes supernaturally. Because almost every human being feels sorrow for suffering. You don't need the work of the Holy Spirit to feel sorry for Jesus, but you need the work of the Holy Spirit to be sorry for your sins. And to turn from them and run to Jesus and say, to you, the Son of God, who died on the cross and in my place, you are my only hope. Do you believe that this morning? That Jesus is our only hope? My father used to preach in the streets of London. There's a song about that, isn't there? Anyway, but he used to preach in the streets of London and he, he always used to preach and he had one line that he always opened with, you ever never die in soul, you'll spend eternity somewhere. You ever never die in soul, you will spend eternity somewhere. Will it be with Jesus as 
the Savior and as bridegroom? I pray it will. Or will it be Jesus as judge? He is Lord of all. He rules over heaven and hell. Satan rules over zilch. Jesus rules over heaven and hell. So here in Gethsemane, I want you to see that Jesus is the true king who's judging the world. But at the same time, my second point, the good shepherd protecting the flock. And I love this. It really thrills my heart. It grips me. It captivates me. Because when Jesus' enemies reply a second time that they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, just look with wonder at his wonderful reply in verse 8. Jesus said, I've told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let them go. If you seek me, let them go. J.C. Ryle says of this moment, the tender sympathy and consideration of our great high priest for his people come out very beautifully in this place and would doubtless have been remembered by the eleven long after. They would recollect that the last thought of their master was for them. See, if I were to be the one arrested, I think my mind was in turmoil. And honestly now, I've, only, I've been pulled over by the police a couple of times in my life. A couple of times in my life. Both unjustly, completely unjustly. <laughs> I was an innocent victim, I promise you. Um, but there's nothing like the fear, I'm sure none of you have been in this situation, of seeing blue lights in your mirror. In your mirror. There's nothing like the fear. You can barely think about anything. My heart was pounding, my palms were sweaty, and I'm scared to death. I can't think of anything. But not Jesus. Jesus, as they seize him and they tie his hands behind his back, they brutally push him around. His thoughts are for his disciples. They fill his mind. Jesus said, I've told you I am he. If you seek me, let them go. And more, more is going on here than Jesus protecting the disciples in one, this one moment of crisis, as John's little comment in verse 9 makes plain to us. That's a beautiful line. This is to fulfill the word that he was spoken. Of those you have given me, I've lost not one. And when he'd been praying in John 17, this is what he said to God, of those you have given me in eternity, I have lost, not lost, even one. Now, this is what I want you to really see this morning, is that the same power, the same power that leveled the soldiers with the word, keeps and protects the disciples and preserves them from eternity into eternity as his own. What a blessed assurance. That same power that leveled those, the, the soldiers is the same power that will keep you. Now, to be sure, one of the band of disciples outwardly called by Jesus to follow him, we see so clearly, had never been converted. He attached himself to Jesus' followers, but he never belonged to Jesus, just Judas. So in this moment of crisis, Judas does not stand with the eleven. He stands where he belongs with the enemies of the cross, fall into the ground. I am. Ego am I. And this is a sober warning, I think, 
that we all, we all need to make our call in an election sure. You see, it's not enough, my dear friend, to associate with Jesus and his people. It's not enough to enjoy an external connection to those who trust in him. You see, Judas Iscariot is famous. I wonder how much, you know, how much, how much knowledge there is in the world today. We have in our youth group, sometimes, sometimes we find people who had no idea who Daniel was, no idea of the den of lions. But Judas is infamous across history as the archetypical traitor. But as, there is another way to see him, not just as a one-kind traitor, but a chief example of a class of religious people which can often be found in churches across the world who formally attach themselves to Jesus Christ and his church, but they're not Christ's and they do not know him. And it should shake us from spiritual laziness and drifting and lukewarmness to realise that an apostle who went on a mission trip, whose feet Jesus washed in the upper room, who ate the Last Supper with the Saviour, such a one could kiss his master and in it, apparent act of adoration repudiate his lordship there's nothing more terrible than that kiss an act of love betrayal so brothers and sisters make sure that your religion is not superficial make sure i pray that no one here is a nominal christian because it's possible to belong to the church and not belong to jesus so there's a sober warning here, but there is a wonderful comfort. Think about the others. Think about the 11. Just think about what a ragtag band these 11 were. I often wonder this. Thomas with all his doubts. James and John who are arguing about who's the best. Delightful people, aren't they? And then you had a tax collector and a zealot. You had a civil servant with a calculator for a brain and a zealot who breathed fire. And even Peter, I love Peter, so brash, so overconfident, and three times he's about to deny the Saviour. So this motley crew, <laughs> this band of hypocrites, this band of show-offs, Jesus kept them and guarded them and shepherded them, and he lost not even one. He who began a good work in you. Hypocrite, show off, lazy, coward, compromiser, doubter, sinner. He who began a good work will complete it. He will. And you are kept weak, trembling, but honest believer in Jesus. You're kept by the power of God into salvation to be revealed at the last time. All that the Father has given the Son cannot be lost. He keeps you. He is the good shepherd. That is the ground of our assurance, my friend. That is the ground of the, our assurance, that he is the good shepherd. It is not that I am wise. I'm spiritually minded. I, you know, I'd like you to know how spiritual I am. It's not I am holy. It is not that I have measured up or I prayed more or I'm slightly softer or I studied harder. And it's not even, I'm a minister of the gospel and I preach the word, thereby I know I'm saved. 
None of those things establish your security. None of them will provide certainty when trials are sought to you that you will stand firm. So what can? What is the basis of your confidence before Almighty God, my friend? It is that Jesus was bound so you can go free. It is that Jesus delivered himself up to protect you. And it must be that of those whom the Father has given to his Son, Jesus Christ has never lost a single one. He will keep you and he will hold you in his hand forever. And that is the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. So if the cross is the great dividing line, so on one hand are those who fall under the judgment of Christ, we need to see that there is another group who under the protection and the watch care of our Lord Jesus Christ, he delivers, keeps, redeems, rescues. When Peter tried to fight back in verse 10 and he cut off Malchus's ear with his sword, look at what Jesus said to him. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Richard Cecil wrote, he has resolved to drink to the dregs the cup of wrath without mercy, that we might drink the cup of mercy without wrath. He doesn't want them to fight back. He wants to go to Calvary, because that is how he will keep us, deliver us, and that is how he will keep and deliver you and save you. He gave himself up for you. But I want you to see, as we close, the, the dilemma that this passage forces on us all, on all mankind. The cross does not allow any third way. There is no third way with Jesus. There is no grey area. You're in one group or the other. I'm convicted of this to the very marrow of my bones. You're either with Judas and the soldiers or you're with Jesus and the disciples. There is no holding ground, there is no middle ground, there is no grey area. And what you do with the Lord Jesus, what you do with Jesus of Nazareth, what you do with the suffering Saviour will determine which group you belong, not just for this life, but for eternity. And if you're to come under the shepherd care of our Lord Jesus Christ, rather than to fall before the voice of his judgment, you must trust yourself. You must give your whole life to him. We are not our own. We belong to him. You must turn from your sin and beg for mercy, ask him for forgiveness, cry to him for deliverance. And the Lord Jesus is holding out a cup of mercy today before the cup of the day of his judgment comes. And he drank in full the cup of wrath so you can drink the cup of mercy. It is for you. You take it by trust in him. So take the cup, drink in his mercy, and be received under his shepherd care. He loves to rescue sinners. So trust him. Flee to him. Flee from the wrath that is to come. I wonder this morning if you will answer the call of Jesus. I remember that from my childhood, hearing a preacher say, will you hear the call of Jesus? He is the true king who's judging the world. And we get to get a snapshot, a glimpse of glory. And one day we will see it wide-eyed. 
for every eye to behold when our master returns. Make no doubt at all, everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. Make no shadow of doubt. The shrill voices who are against him today. As Stephen Fry in our country said, if there is a God, I want to tell him, how dare you? He will bow the knee before Jesus. Everyone will bow the knee before Jesus. Will you bow the knee before him today as Lord and Saviour? Or will you have to bow before him as judge? He will keep you and he will guard you and he will feed you and bring you home at last. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.